Philippians 2, last week we went as far as verse 11. This morning we'll pick up in verse 12 and make our way down through verse 16. And if you're turned to Philippians 2, as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God as we read our passage of Scripture this morning? Philippians 2, beginning in the 12th verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain and father we ask we invite your Holy Spirit to help us this morning to understand the word of God Lord you inspired it by your spirit and as the author of it we pray that you would now also be the interpreter of it that you would help us to hear you speaking exactly what you have spoken every thought and intent behind this passage and portion of your word Lord you know what it means to prepare every soul in this room and we ask that you would do that now help us Lord and we pray that your spirit would just speak personally and directly to each and every one of our hearts. Bless your word as we open it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in our world, there are certainly multitudes of people who are married. And yet, though there are many people who are married, there are lots of people who are still struggling to live a married life. You know, I have found by observation and personal experience, getting married is really quite simple. However, living married is the challenging part, and no amens on that, or you'll need marriage counseling afterwards. In the same way, as getting married is one thing, living married is something totally different, I think there are lots of people who have gotten saved and are Christians. And yet, though they are Christians, they are still really struggling with living the Christian life. Again, it's not really complicated to get saved and to become a Christian. Yet, living as a Christian really is what is, it seems, the challenging part for every one of us once we become a believer. And this passage of Scripture set in front of us this morning gives us helpful instruction as a follower of Jesus of how to live out the Christian life. How do we live out the Christian life? Once we've experienced God's salvation, once we truly have been saved and born again, uh, what does it mean to live the Christian life? How does that happen? How do we go about it? And even why is it important? Well, the passage in front of us kind of summarizes in a brief form and explains exactly the answer to that. It gives us instruction of living the Christian life. Now remember, in this section of Philippians, Paul is talking about the subject of walking worthy of the calling in which we've received. He said back in chapter 1, verse 27, that we should walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. The idea being, again, that our profession spiritually would be something that then matches up with uh, a consistency of our practice as we walk out our spiritual life. That we don't want there to be an inconsistency there. That our spiritual practice would match up with our spiritual profession. That we wouldn't claim to follow Jesus Christ and then become guilty after confessing Christ as a follower of descending into unworthy behavior of what a Christian is supposed to be. And let's be very candid, that is a challenging thing and a potential uh, weakness and something that we can all fall prey to and that we must all guard against in each and every one of our own lives as believers. And Paul in verses 5, or excuse me, verse 6 through 11, we saw last time, basically there set before us the supreme example in our Lord Jesus Christ and encouraged us to have the same attitude, outlook, or we might say the same mindset 
that our Lord Jesus did as a man as he lived among us, who though being God himself, we saw, condescended and humbled himself and lived obediently, it says, to fulfill the will of God. Now, with that as a backdrop, Paul then comes into verse 12, beginning saying, Therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved. Now, when he says my beloved, he's basically using a term of endearment there to demonstrate his care. It's a term that speaks of a tender, loving affection for those he's speaking to. And he's going to address them about some things. And he wants to indicate to them up front, look, I'm sharing these things with you because I love you. And out of my loving concern for you, that's where this instruction comes from. And he uses that term, take notice at the beginning of verse 12, in fact, you should circle it in your Bible, therefore. That's a term worth circling because whenever you see the term therefore in the Bible, it's a connecting term. It's a term that indicates that what I'm about to say in the next few sentences or section ahead is directly because of what I just said prior to this. So grammatically, it's a connecting term. He, he, in essence, is saying, look, in light of how Jesus Christ, our Lord, lived, verses 6 through 11, therefore, we should then live responsively as his followers and as his servants. Interesting, 1 John 2, 6 says, he who says he abides in Jesus ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. So he says, therefore, in light of what we learned about in Jesus when he lived among us as a man, as his followers, and we say that we abide in him and we say Christ lives in us, therefore, he says, in light of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So verses 12 and 13, he's going to give us instruction here to a person who has experienced God's salvation. He's going to give us instruction. If you've experienced God's salvation, he says, let me explain to you then how you should honestly live out a saved life. That if you've truly experienced salvation, let me tell you, he says, how then you can live out an obedient Christian life. Please hear me. He is not describing here how to become saved. Again, he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. We know that. What he's describing here is not how to become saved. He's discussing what should be happening in our lives once we've genuinely experienced salvation from God so in verse 12 notice he begins there referring to these believers in Philippi by saying to them therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed notice you have always obeyed again if you're a note taker you might want to jot down the statement Christian life begins with obedience and Christian life should continue with obedience Christian life begins with obedience and it should then continue with obedience. In a sense, again, we are submitting our will to the will of God when we accept Jesus Christ and we come into a relationship with God through salvation. And we could say, and hear me out in this, that we, in a sense, obeyed the gospel in order to get saved. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Though we fully understand that we are saved by grace through faith and we're not saved by works, we understand that contextually, scripturally, no misunderstanding there. We're saved by faith in Jesus and the work in which he has done and offered. By the same token, there is an aspect of our faith, saving faith. There is an aspect of saving faith that translates into obedience regarding the personal response we make to accept God's offer of eternal life in salvation. Saving faith, as I've said before, is not just a mental assent to spiritual facts. Saving faith, again, James says in his letter, remember, you believe in God, great. Even demons believe in God and demons shudder at the presence of God, which is more than what a lot of 
unconverted people even do regarding who God is and the fact that there's an eternal damnation awaiting them if they don't embrace God's salvation. So saving faith is more than just mental assent to some spiritual facts agreeing with facts. Saving faith is an active faith that causes me to respond to truth personally in the yielding of my will. Interesting, when you look at the New Testament in Romans and Galatians and 1 Peter regarding salvation, you find this statement, obeying the truth. Interesting, obeying the truth. And it's said in context to salvation. Hebrews 5 verse 9 says, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again, on the other side of that, Romans 10, 2 Thessalonians 1 1 Peter 4, there speak of those, it says, who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indicating the idea there, some people may believe the facts about Jesus and salvation and what that gospel message means. They've heard it and they may agree, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I, I wouldn't argue with that. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Do you understand? They agree with the facts of spiritual things. However, they have never submitted to the claims and the invitation required in the salvation experience of receiving the gift, of yielding their will to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ by putting their full faith forward in an obedient act of the submitting of their will unto the Lord. So again, though we understand we're saved by faith, not by any works, saving faith does prompt me, listen, to obey the invitation of the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ who looks into my soul and says in my heart language, follow me. Interesting. You ever notice how much Jesus said, follow me, even more than he said, believe me. Follow me, he said. Yes, faith, but it's a saving faith that translates itself into an obedient act to say, I will act upon that and embrace the invitation that Jesus is making. Now, Christian life then should be marked, as I said then, with a lifestyle of continuous and constant obedience to the Lord in our life. Once we're saved, the Bible teaches we become then a child of God. You notice we read in verse 15 this morning, referring to Christians that Paul calls them children of God. Now by design, it's the way it's supposed to be, by design, children are supposed to obey their father. That's normal design. So if I'm a child of God, it would go without saying that as a child of God, I should be obedient to my father in heaven that is my responsibility to live in obedience to God as my father once I become a child of God part of getting saved also involves confessing Jesus Christ as the Lord in my life and again by design a servant is supposed to live in obedience to their master or to someone if they're the Lord over their life so if I truly have bowed my knee and confessed with my mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, then I should continuously, it's my responsibility, in essence, it's, it's required of me if I've confessed him as Lord to live in obedience in every way to Jesus Christ as my Lord. In fact, Jesus in John 14 spoke about this in regards to relationship with him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, Jesus says, it is he who loves me. In other words, Jesus equates the two as, as synonymous, as simultaneous, that love for Jesus is demonstrated by your obedience to Jesus. And Jesus says, you can tell who it is who truly loves me because they obey me. They live in obedience to me. It's reflected, their love is through their obedient action. Now, perhaps in hearing that, you say, yeah, you know what? My heart resonates with that. Lord, I want to obey you. I want to live for you. I want to live an obedient life in every way. What does that involve? Well, let me just give you two simple ways. It's not real complicated. Two simple ways that you can live an obedient Christian life. First of all, by living in submission to and in accordance with the written word of God. Very simple. Do you want to live an obedient life, an obedient Christian life, live in submission to and in accordance with the written word of God because this is God's will, plain and simple. It's very evident, very clear. 
Secondarily, another way, besides living in accordance to the word of God, we also can live an obedient Christian life by just being submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God who entered inside of us at salvation, who is going to, from the inside, direct us and guide us regarding God's will for our life. Now, in regards to their obedience, notice with me in verse 12 there that Paul here reminds them that their obedience should not be dependent upon his presence. You see what he says in verse 12 there, again in the text? He says, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only when I was with you, but now much more also, he says, in my absence. So Paul commends them as Christians for living obediently to the Lord while he was present among them, planting the church. He pastored that church for a while before he moved on. And Paul commends them. He says, you know what, hey, I'm really thankful that it seemed like that you just, you there in Philippi, you believers, you just always had an obedient heart. You lived obediently to the Lord when I was with you. And it, it blessed me. And then he says, yet, yet he says, your obedience to God and your obedience to Jesus, it can't be tied to my presence only. Because what if I'm not present with you anymore? And ultimately, Paul typically ended up not being present long term with all the churches that he planted because he was by design and calling a church planner. God used him, established a work, pastor work. And, and, and so Paul understood the reality of this and he says, look, your obedience to God can't be tied to my present only. It must also be happening, he says, it must also be happening equally in my absence when I'm not there with you. Again, take note, obedience should not be regulated by nor should it be dependent upon the presence of of a person. Let me say that again. Obedience should not be regulated by or dependent upon the presence of a human being. And sometimes if I'm honest with myself, looking at my own life experience since I've been a Christian or the lives of other people who followed, sometimes our life obedience can be prompted by the presence of a person. And let's step even outside of uh, you know, our spiritual life. Think of the workplace. Who does not know employees who work one way and then all of a sudden when the you know, manager comes around the corner or the CEO, it's, you know, and then all of a sudden they're, they're actively... And what happens? The presence of the boss makes them obey and do what they should be doing when the boss is at the other plant or the boss is in the next room in the factory. And again, the presence of a person... It stimulates obedience. Or the same thing with a child. You know, when, when dad's there, they would, of course they're going to obey and do what they're supposed to, but if dad's not there, are they still going to obey when dad or mom's not there? Again, that idea. And the same thing can happen spiritually. That sometimes the presence of a human being is what stimulates obedience. Sometimes, again, I think sometimes we need to be careful. We can begin to almost become dependent upon a person to want to understand how to obey the Lord. And it doesn't start out as a bad thing, but sometimes it can begin to get a little out of balance, whereby we become dependent spiritually upon maybe a more mature believer that God's brought into our life, a mentor, a spiritual leader, and we become dependent upon that person to always, in a sense, show us or explain to us how to obey God. So we kind of just always, by default, just look to them to, how do you obey God and things? Because they help with that and they instruct. And sometimes as well, someone's presence, we need a person's presence, if we're not careful, to almost sometimes subtly pressure and persuade us to do the right things spiritually that we know we ought to do as a believer sometimes. And, and if we're not careful, we can develop this habit where we almost need to sense the pressure of maybe a specific person being around, and we almost need a person to be around to stimulate and persuade us kind of like a, an indirect pressure to make us feel like okay I'm accountable because the pressure's on they're watching or they're aware of what I'm doing and we almost begin to become overly dependent upon that to obey and do what we should spiritually hear me to a small extent there's nothing wrong with the presence of a human being encouraging me to obey helping you to obey I think accountability is wonderful giving instruction and guidance it's wonderful to an extent, it can encourage obedience. However, that being said, ultimately, my obedience cannot require another person apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I cannot require a person. Christian obedience should be something that is not dependent upon who's with me or who's not with me or who's watching me. Christian obedience should be dependent upon the reality that I love Jesus and because I love Jesus and I'm committed to Jesus, I always want to obey Jesus. Again, Jesus' presence is with us always, all the time. Jesus said things like what? I am with you always. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in light of that, Jesus can always help us to understand how to obey or what it means to obey God in a situation. You know, we become overly dependent upon a person and all of a sudden God takes that person out of our life. Oh, what am I going to do? Well, Jesus is still with you. And Jesus wants to talk to you and he's a good shepherd and he can guide you. He'll show you how to obey God. He'll show you what to do in every situation and, and what's, he stays with you. He's always with you. And beyond that, the reality as well of the presence of the Lord with me should be a strong enough motivator, would you agree, to keep me doing what's obedient. Again, Hebrews 4, regarding and kind of warning against disobedience, says all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord's presence is always with me. If a person persuades me to obey, by all means, the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ with me all the time should always be a strong motivator to stimulate obedience in my life, doing the right thing in situations. You know, question this morning for yourself. Ask yourself, is your spiritual obedience prompted by the presence of a person? Do you sense that you need that in your life? As a young person, maybe a teenager, do you need your parents, and wonderful if you have Christians, but do you need your parents to be with you when you're with your friends or at your school? Do you need your parents' presence with you to pressure and persuade you to do the obedient thing to God in a situation? The Lord's with you. Your Father is always with you. As a Christian, do you need the presence of other people in the church to when you're faced with something to, you know, if the Christians are with you, then all right, you got, that's that pressure that you need. Oh, I know what they'll say if I don't. And, or, or are you like a chameleon where you can kind of just change depending upon what crowd you're with? No, 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 we don't want chameleon Christianity. We want constant Christianity. Obedience because my Jesus is with me. He can show me what to do and, and he is with me and I don't want to be ashamed of doing something in front of him. If I'm ashamed to do something in front of you, by goodness, I should be ashamed of doing something in front of the Lord. And that should be the stimulator and the motivator in all of our lives. It should come from that conscious awareness. The Lord's sufficient to lead you. He can guide you and show you what to do and he should be sufficient motivation that he's ever present and we always want to please him. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. If you're a Christian this morning, can I ask you, what's your aim? What are you aiming at? God says, aim at being well-pleasing to him. Aim at saying, you know, I just, I just want to please the Lord in all things at all times and all ways. My aim in life is to please the Lord. And I may not please people, but I want to please the Lord. And that's a great aim to have and a great way to bring about living an obedient life. So how does that living obedient process come to take place in the Christian life? Well, verses 12 and 13 here explain kind of the wonderful balance of what you might call human responsibility and divine enablement happening simultaneously in a cooperative way. Look again at verse 12. He says here, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that is a clear reference to human responsibility. Please take note here. Please take note what this does not say. He does not say work for your salvation. He does not say work toward your salvation. He does not say work on your salvation. The Bible teaches none of those ideas. The Bible is very clear, as I said earlier, we cannot earn our salvation. We don't acquire our salvation by things that we do or work toward getting our sins forgiven or working toward access to heaven. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of 
works. And remember, as I said earlier, in context, Paul here is giving instruction to Christians who have already experienced salvation regarding how then to live out an obedient Christian life. Look what the text clearly states. He says, work out. Work out your own salvation. In other words, now that you possess salvation, now experientially you've got to work that out in a daily life of walking with Jesus. When you look at that term work out in the original language in the Greek, it means to carry out a goal or an assignment unto its completion. If I can illustrate, it's like what you do with a math problem, one of those complicated math problems, you know, algebra or trigonometry, which none of those things that you don't even want to think about remembering, but you're assigned a problem and then you gotta, you got to work out the problem, right? You get it and you go, oh, and you got to work through the process until you bring it out to its completion at the end. In the same way, this is the term he's using, work out your salvation. God's assigned to you a spiritual life. When you experienced salvation, you were given a spiritual life. A work of God spiritually began in your life when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And now God says, from your conversion all the way till the moment when you enter into glory, you got to now work it out like that. You got to be engaged in the process and you got to now work out your salvation. You need to work it through until it's completed end. God's given you a spiritual life. But you have to work out what God's worked into you. I need to cooperate with God. In other words, I do have a responsibility as a Christian. I do have a human responsibility to do my part, in essence, in an ongoing spiritual life, to put into practice through spiritual living what God has started in me. The Bible is very clear to us that a spiritual work of salvation was something that God brought about. We didn't bring it about. God brings about the work of salvation the moment we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior and Lord. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of generation and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So when you understood the gospel message and you made the decision to yield your will to receive Jesus Christ, as the result, the Bible says, a supernatural work happened inside of your life. The Spirit of God entered into your life. He regenerated your dead spirit and sins and trespasses and you became alive to God and now you have a genuine relationship with God in a personal way. But now we have to work out what God has worked inside of our lives. Spurgeon said this. It's a great quote. He said, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, but not until God has worked in us can we work it out of us. Getting saved and experiencing conversion brings with it personal responsibility, continuing then to respond to the direction of the Holy Spirit within me, yielding to the lordship of Jesus Christ over my life in a cooperative way with my human free will, yielding in conscious participation with what that new divine nature in me is seeking to direct me to do. And it's a part where I play a role in the process Yes, God miraculously began the spiritual work, yet that never negates my human responsibility to cooperate and participate in relationship with God. It's a relationship. There's a cooperative experience that takes place. God, the Bible tells us, intends for us to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In other words, I'm not to quench the spirit of God's promptings in me by living in sin and disobedience in my flesh. The Bible makes it clear we are to exercise ourselves towards godliness, that we are to walk worthy of the calling that we have received, that we're to grow in grace. According to God, once I'm saved, I have a human responsibility still. And let me just say this. If I as a Christian... Or if you, as a converted person, ignore your human contribution to the relationship that you have with God after you are saved, you are going to live a saved soul, but a carnal Christian life with no testimony and a lot of hypocrisy that turns off a lot of unsaved people. 
If we are not careful and if we don't work out our salvation, then what God intends for you as a Christian is never going to work out. You hear me? If we don't work out our salvation in fear and trembling, then what God intends for you as a Christian, it's never going to work out because you're going to miss that cooperative process. Note even, if you would, sort of the seriousness of the responsibility. He says, work out your own salvation. He says, and do this with fear and trembling. The idea is with a sense of holy reverence, with an awe and a reverence for the fact that I have a sincere concern. I don't want to disobey God. I know I can. I don't want to dishonor the Lord. I, I want to have a healthy fear that's serious about wanting to obey His will and plan. Notice also from the verse that God stresses the individuality of the required stewardship in my Christian life. He says, work out your, don't miss that word, own salvation. See, I can't work out George's salvation for him and George can't work out my salvation for me. We have an individual responsibility as a believer, as a child of God. Each believer must take a personal responsibility for their own Christian walk. I'm a personally accountable for what I do once I became a child of God and, and now I'm required personally to live out my own obedient life. And listen, what others do, what other Christians do and what other Christians don't do is never fair grounds nor does it give me an excuse for living wrongly myself. Uh-uh-uh. That's not what God says. In fact, the truth of the matter is I'm the one responsible for what I do with my own spiritual walk and God has entrusted equally. He's an equal opportunity savior. God has entrusted equally to every single born-again believer in Jesus Christ what we need to live out a fruitful, victorious, obedient Christian life. We've all received the same Spirit of God we all have access to the same copy of the Word of God. We all have opportunity to come and gather and worship God and be with God's people and participate. We all have free will and the choice, am I going to walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh? God's given us equal opportunity. And on top of that, God's also established a plan and purpose for your calling personally as one of His children. Again, I think this verse here, the idea of working out your own salvation could also infer that, that though we've all been saved for the same eternal destination that we're going to go to heaven, I think it is also true that the Lord saved you for a unique and a specific purpose, for your time while you're still on this earth. Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 3, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? I keep pressing forward. I always forget what's behind. I just keep pressing towards what's ahead. I don't rejoice in all my victories in the past and live in the good old days of Christianity and miss what God's doing today. And I don't say, oh, because of the past, woe is me, I'm a victim. Paul says, no, I forget what's behind. I press towards what's ahead because he says, I want to lay hold of the reason that Jesus laid hold of me. And you know what? I understand Paul saying it. Paul knew what Jesus laid, Jesus laid hold of him to do certain works, to live out certain things, to preach the gospel. And, and listen, Jesus saved you, yes, so that you can go to heaven, but he also saved you and he left you on this earth for a purpose right now. And he saved you because he said, you know, I see what her personality's like. And I see, what, I see what his gifts are. And so he says, yeah, I'm going to save you to go to heaven, but I'm going to save you because I also have things I want to use you for now and a unique plan and purpose for your life. That's what Ephesians 2 verse 10 is all about. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved you for a specific purpose. So God says, work out your own salvation. Don't try and say, well, let, let me see how Paul lives his salvation. I'm going to try and be just like Paul. No, work out your own salvation. You don't have to try and mimic another Christian. God saved you, he's created you, and he saved you for a specific purpose. Follow your calling, your own salvation. Work it out of your life and experience what God's intended for you as his servant and as his child. Well, after speaking about that human responsibility of working out our salvation, Paul then immediately says, verse 13, in balance, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
So verse 12 speaks of human responsibility. Verse 13 then balances that by speaking of the wonderful assurance of divine enablement. Human responsibility, verse 12. Verse 13, divine enablement. Telling us in this wonderful promise of living the Christian life, hey, God works in you. Work out your salvation, man. But hey, don't be stressed because God's going to work in you. God's going to work in you to help you work out of you what his plans and purposes are. Again, that word work in the Greek is where we get the word energize. It means to provide enablement or empower for activity. It speaks of how God, by his Holy Spirit, gives us the enablement and the empowerment to live out the Christian life. It's the glory and the marvelous plan of Christianity. Other religions in the world say live this way, but they give no power to do it. God says live this way and I will live inside of you and I will empower you because I'm a living God. So I'm not going to ask you to do something I know you can't do. So God says love. Then God says, but I'll work in you by the power of my Holy Spirit to help you love in a way that you can. God says, live holy. But he says, you can't live holy. That's why I had to save you, Tony. You're, you're stinking sinful and selfish. But my Holy Spirit will live in you and he'll work in you to help you to live a holy and a godly life. Again, Jesus warned of trying to live independent. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So don't ever try and live independent of God's enablement. Jesus says, you need my help and apart from me, you can do nothing. So Paul's assuring that God via his spirit is present with us and will work in us what it takes to fulfill what's pleasing to God and to live out his will as an obedient Christian. Again, back Philippians 1.6, we read, being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Again, God began the work and God says, and I'm gonna also work in you to bring it to completion. Hebrews 13:21 says he will make you complete in every good work to do his will, listen, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. See, Christian, this is the blessed assurance of God's incredible plan that God is at work in me. God's at work in you, guiding us, helping us teaching us and directing us, empowering us, enabling us, changing us, transforming us, helping us to live a godly, Christ-honoring life rather than living the way that we would if we were independent of a relationship with God. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18 regarding our being conformed in the image of Christ. The Bible says when we get saved, one of God's main agendas is to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to make us more Christ-like. We said the book of Philippians is about being Christ-like, the theme of it, living the Christian life. Well, listen to this promise, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you hear that? There's a process. There's a spiritual metamorphosis from the inside out that God's doing in your life once you get saved and become a Christian. And God says, yes, I want to transform you to make you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. And it's a process. Notice, we're being transformed. It doesn't say we've been transformed. Stop getting so discouraged with yourself. We're being, we're all in process. We're being transformed, but he says it happens by the spirit of the Lord. So God says, I want to change you. I want to transform you, but I take complete responsibility to get the work done. By my spirit, by the spirit of the Lord, I will transform you to become what you need to become. I love, he says, God works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Again, there are things that God wants me to do as a Christian that will bring pleasure to him, things that please him. And God's marvelous plan, he does this. There are things that I want you to do, Tony, that will please me. But here's what I'm going to do. To orchestrate you doing what pleases me, I'm going to work in you to will, that is to desire to do what pleases me. So God says, I know what will please me from your life, but I'm not going to leave that up to you. I'm going to work in you to will, to have a desire to want to do the thing that will ultimately please me. Again, the Bible teaches God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. 
So this amazing plan as it works out of our lives, a desire arises within you. You have an interest as a Christian to do something, to serve the Lord or to make the right choice in a situation where you have an opportunity to do right or wrong. And this desire arises within you to want to do something. And guess what? God's the one behind that. He's orchestrating. He says, look, it would really please me for you to serve me in this way. So I'm going to work a desire in your heart to want to serve me in this way. It would really please me if you make this decision in your marriage relationship. So God says, you know what? I'm not going to count on your heart. I'm going to put in you, I'm going to write on that flesh top of your heart, live this way. And God says, I'll put my desire in you. But he doesn't just put the desire in us to will, but then he also gives us the power, it says, to do what pleases him. It's an amazing plan. God's pretty smart. He says, I'm going to give you a desire to do what pleases me, and then I will give you the power also working in you to do what it is to perform my will. So again, there's this necessary balance, submissively cooperating with God's work in us, human responsibility, and then the divine enablement that God gives to us. He works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Well, verse 14 to 16, Paul then shows what this looks like, if you would, in practical Christian living. Or in essence, this is how it kind of plays out in our lives and why we should do that. He says, verse 14, do all things, and I wish he didn't say that, do all things without complaining and disputing. So again, if we're seeking to live in spiritual obedience, letting God work in us, desiring to do his good pleasure, not what pleases me foremost. If that's the case, then Paul says that should affect our attitude. And the way he says it should affect our attitude is notice verse 14, it should make us a pleasant person to be around. It should make us a pleasant person to be around. See, if I want to please God above all else, and ultimately I'm not doing what I'm doing to please myself or even to please other people, but I really just want to please God and let him work in me, it's going to enable me to humbly accept things happening in my life more easily, and it's going to enable me to get along with people in an easier way, so where I can do things without complaining and arguing. Interesting, that word complaining there in the Greek, it doesn't speak of an outspoken disagreement that we articulate or a loudly expressed dissatisfaction. It's a term that was used to refer to a quiet mumbling under the breath because of discontent. Because of discontent with people or discontent with life. Again, grumbling and discontent because life never seems to go the way I want it to go. So I'm always kind of mumbling and grumbling under my breath. And, and that's the idea there. Again, if I'm yielding to the Lord and letting God work in my life, that won't be happening as much because I will interpret everything that's happening in my life with people and among me as just something God's using to mold and shape me and help me develop spiritually that I might live in a way that's ultimately more for his pleasure. And if I'm letting the Lord work in my life, he says we'll be able to do things without disputing or arguing. Again, if I'm foremost trying to please the Lord, then I don't have to always be a combat and I don't always have to fight and strive with other people for stuff or over stuff. Typically, many a times, a contentious spirit is a symptom. And many a times, a contentious spirit in a person is a symptom indicating that somebody is not at peace with God vertically in their own life. So because they're not at peace with God on the vertical and they have conflict going on in their own soul, it then overflows in the way that they interact with other people. They become contentious and argumentative and, and, and antagonistic. Again, if I'm letting the, word, the Lord work in me, I'll be a peacemaker. If I'm letting the Lord work in me, then I'm going to walk in harmony with him, so I'm going to want to just, I'm in harmony with the Lord. Everything's okay. And it helps us to be more in harmony with other people around us, and we don't have to be disputing with people and argumentative and contentious. My point is this, this morning, great opportunity, check your attitude symptoms. Check your attitude symptoms. This morning, do you find yourself complaining? Do you find yourself grumbling and discontent under your breath at everything in life and everyone around you? This morning, honestly evaluate, do you seem prone to always be disputing with everyone? Always having to be contentious and argumentative? What might that be? Can I suggest it may be that something's not right vertically between you and God? And you might revisit that to then help things balance out on the horizontal. 
Paul, notice in verse 15, then goes on to say to them, do this that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he reminds these believers they're living in the midst, notice, of a crooked and perverse generation. That word crooked there means to be out of proper alignment. It speaks of warped or deformed. The word perverse there indicates distorted or twisted, a defilement of what's proper, or taking something from what's normal and then twisting it away from what's normal. And it was a perfect description of the generation morally and spiritually of the Roman society in that day, and it is all the more a perfect picture in this current last days generation of where you and I are still living, a crooked and perverse generation. Would you agree our current generation is crooked and perverse? It's taking everything out of alignment. Morally, spiritually, right, wrong. This is a distorted generation we're living in. This is a generation we are living in where people are defiling what's proper. They're turning away from what's normal and they're trying to distort everything. Yet the Bible says to us, listen, Christian, despite how dark, wicked, perverse, moral, twisted and warped the generation is, God's plan is not for us to isolate ourselves from the wicked world or to insulate ourselves from a crooked and perverse generation. Instead, God says you have to dwell among that. And I want you to actively still try and influence the world around you. It is crooked and perverse. And you're maybe the only thing as my presence on the earth that might help bring a little bit of straightness to all the crookedness going on around you. Again, Jesus told us that we are to be light in the world. He says here, among which, verse 15, he says, you shine as lights in the world. That word light that he uses there refers to a luminary or a star that you see in the sky. And why is a star so distinctive? Because of the black backdrop around it, it distinctively stands out because of the black backdrop. And he's saying that's what you're supposed to be as a Christian in the crooked, perverse world and generation that you're living. You're to shine as a light in that crooked and perverse generation. Again, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, that we are the light of the world indicating that as a Christian, I am to live in such a way where I stand out in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as light. Not to run away from the world, to form my little Christian bubble and put my head in the sand and, oh, wicked, I'm not going to get defiled by those people. No. Influence. Affect them. Don't forget you were a part of them once. And somebody shined light into your life which allowed you to be saved out of that and to have a clear understanding of what God's plan and intention is. So in order to do this, he says, verse 15, that we need to become, he says, verse 15, as children of God, blameless and harmless. Those two terms there describe being innocent, guiltless, or pure. In essence, what Paul is simply saying, that term blameless refers to wine that wasn't diluted with water or metals that didn't have alloys that would weaken them. He's saying, look, in the same way, you should as a Christian, I should as a born-again believer, be careful that we're not living in hypocrisy and inconsistency after we claim the name of Christ because if we do, we're going to weaken our effect and our influence in the world. So he's saying, look, be careful that you continue to live blameless. My spiritual life should not be tainted like polluted, dirty water. Hey, I'm a Christian, but yet I'm guilty at the same time of living in sin and getting drunk or still doing drugs or you know, sleeping with someone or, or, or talking with profanity. And, and people go, what? That's an anemic witness. So God's saying, look, in order to shine his lights in the world, we need to live blameless. We need to live above reproach. We need to not become guilty of living in inconsistency that weakens our testimony because when, like Daniel, in the midst of Babylon, you stand out like a bright shining light in the middle of wicked Babylon, then you have credibility and people say, maybe I should consider this Jesus. Maybe this is all real. And it shines a light in their life in a much more powerful way. Now, how do we shine our lights in the world? Look what Paul says, verse 16. He says, by holding fast the word of life. That is, by upholding the word of God 
as the guidepost for how we're supposed to do life. That's how we shine as lights in the world. By upholding the word of God as the guidepost for this is how you should do life. That is, by living a life in obedience to the word of God, demonstrating to the world around you, you know what? I'm not afraid to hold a line morally. I do hold a line morally because God's word says this is what's right and this is what's wrong. So I hold fast the word of life by saying that's the way I live my life according to the word of God and that shines in people's lives. And by speaking the word of God to people and sharing the word of God, believing that as we share the word of God with people, there's life-giving power as light enters into their dark world. Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is living and powerful. So as we hold fast the word of life by how we live and by how we speak and talk to others, that lets us shine light into a dark world. Well, finally, look what Paul says at the end of verse 16. He says, cooperate with these things, he says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The day of Christ in the Bible is typically a reference to that time when as Christians we will stand before the presence of the Lord to receive reward for how we ran our race in our Christian life. And Paul here says, look, as your spiritual leader, I'm asking, I want to be able to celebrate your obedience and obedient Christian living as the result of my investment in you so that when the day of Christ comes, if you didn't cooperate with the Lord, I'm fearful my ministry will have been worthless and ineffective, and that would be so utterly disappointing. Interesting, he uses the terms laboring and running. Now, I'll be the first to it. Running and laboring is never easy. I don't quite honestly like either one. I don't like to run or to work if I don't have to. But to run or to labor and it to be in vain, that's really disappointing. And in the same way, the Bible teaches us that when we got saved, it was like the starting gun went off. And now you have a spiritual race to run as a Christian. When you got saved, and now you have a race to run until you cross the finish line to enter into heaven. And one day when you're done running your race, at the day of Christ, you as well will be evaluated and rewarded according to how you lived. Let me leave you with these words of exhortation in regards to that. Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Father, we thank you for your word, for what it speaks into our lives and what it shows us about you and your plan and ourselves. And Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to live in a way that would honor you. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's grace to work in us what is well-pleasing to you. That, Lord, what we have heard this morning, you would help us by the grace of God, not just to be hearers, but doers of the word, putting into practice, yielding to you what you intend for our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name.